The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts... John and Steven. Thank you, it's Kevin and the Comics. I'm your host, John Clark. And with me today is a good friend of the show who hasn't been on in a while, but there's a good reason to have him on, and we're going to talk about that probably for an hour. Neil Fisher is here. Hi, Neil. How are you? Hey. Good, good. Thank you for having me back. Always nice to see you. Always nice to see you, even through StreamYard. Uh, we talk about getting <laughs> together in person, but nobody does that anymore. What's the point? It's very 2019 well, to get together in person. Why? Why do we get in, you know in front of each other when we could do StreamYard and not wear any pants? So that's true. And I could pause my movie at 6:59 and run in here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I want to talk about your book behind the screens right away. So this is a really cool idea. It's a gorgeous book. Um, but how did you come up with the idea to start working on this? So uh, I had a, a book come out last year called Being Patrick Swayze, Essential Teachings from the Master of the Mullet. It was a comedic love letter to Patrick Swayze. Yeah, we and, talked about it at the time. Yes, you... at the time we talked about it. And um, the publisher, Chronicle Books, who's a great publisher, um, I had been pitching a few different projects with them and just talking about books in general. And they realized just how much of a pop culture nerd I am. And uh, throughout that process, there was one book that almost went, but it didn't. And then um, uh, an editor that I had been working with said, oh, you know who you should meet is one of our other editors, Maddie. She's working on this really cool project and it needs someone uh, who just knows a lot about pop culture, especially TV. And I said, well, yeah, sign me up, whatever it is. And Maddie pitched to me. She said, you know, there's this wonderful artist in Spain named Inaki, and he's an ex-interior designer. He he draws uh, floor plans of movies and TV homes, and he sells them on Etsy. He's just really, really great. And we have all this wonderful artwork. He's drawing some new artwork, but we need text, and we need someone to uh, research you know, 35 TV shows, talk about the history, anecdotes, behind-the-scenes, Easter eggs. And, um, and I just said, yes, yeah, sign me up. I, I want to do that right away. And it was just like a, an awesome way to um, sort of reintroduce myself into some of the famous TV shows that I knew about, learn about some new ones that I hadn't even seen before, and um, yeah, just a, a wonderful, uh, fun project to be a part of. Yeah, it really runs the gamut. There's everything from I Love Lucy to Scandal in here. So there's a lot of different genres, a lot of different eras. Um, but for the most part, these are sound stages yep. that are, are put together. Um, and there's been this meme for the longest time, and this is one you've covered, uh, uh, the Seinfeld apartment. Uh, there's a meme going around that that apartment is impossible. Yes. Yeah. And that was that was one of my favorites because I'm a huge fan of Seinfeld. And, uh, you know, you watch that show all the time. And for me, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, it was on TV every day around dinner after dinner. And and now it's one of those that you put on at nighttime uh, before you go to bed to kind of relax. And, uh, you know, you see his hallway all the time. You see, you know, Newman running up there, bugging Jerry. You see Kramer with his antics in the hallway. And then when you think about it, you're like, OK, well, it's a TV set. Um, all this is happening. The hallway is very, very straight. And then someone on Reddit, I believe, is the one who uh, unearthed sort of the, the problem there. They said, hey, you know, if you have a straight hallway like this, if you look at Jerry's uh, apartment, his kitchen jets out into what would be the hallway. So it would never exist that way. And so um, what's great about this book is Inyaki, the artist, he um, looked at all these floor plans, watched hour and hours of TV. And if any of them had any sort of uh, inconsistencies with the architecture, he fixed them and made them as if they would be a real apartment, real house, you know, what have you. Yeah, so there is a turn to this hallway, which again we don't see in the hallway scenes of Seinfeld, but it's just enough. They ju- they um, this comes at a good time because they just did a Lego set of Seinfeld, yep. as well as Friends, and that that one again you can see that turn in the hallway. That's like there, yeah. and uh, this Lego set doesn't even bother to do the bedroom or the bathroom. I noticed but, that my mom and my brother were were putting it together one day. I came home uh, or to visit them, and, and it was just so cool to to see the the set being put together and and then of course you you know you hear all the lines and and all the the famous uh disagreements in the apartment which is great. Yeah. It's uh it's a beautiful set and the and the friend sets are were even bigger and I think even not only were they more popular and bigger but they were bigger sets because they were they did the Central Perk which was yep. the center probably more iconic than Monk's Diner in Seinfeld. But then they also did both apartments and the hallway between them. 
Yeah, it was a, a huge set. And, you know, it's one that I, I feel like Friends is one of those shows that um, has gotten even almost maybe even almost almost bigger than it was when it was on TV. And that set, you know, it was important to have the main set, Monica and Rachel's apartment and, and Joey and Chandler's. And then, um, yeah, Central Perk, because there's just so much that's happened on that show. And it was really kind of fun because, uh, you know, admittedly, I was always a Seinfeld person. I don't know if it was quite the, you know, the Stones and the Beatles argument or whatever, but I would, you know, pick Seinfeld, you know, 10 out of 10 if I had to. But um, I, I wasn't as familiar with Friends. I mean, I knew it. I've seen all the famous episodes and I learned so much about it because I actually ended up watching hours and hours of it. Um, and what's fun about that show is just to kind of start off is uh, they never really mention an address for the most part. And so when I was deep diving, uh, I was finding all these Wikipedia uh, articles and and Friends wiki sites and they always had the address listed uh as just this one address and I, I was watching all these these you know hours of footage and i'm like no this is wrong like this isn't the right address and so i combed through seasons and seasons of footage and happened to find an episode when ross is getting married and he's debating sending uh, an invitation to rachel and he has the address on the envelope before he puts it in the mailbox and i found it and i screenshotted it and i uploaded it to all the wikis and it was the first time in my life that i've ever corrected a wikipedia which was like it felt like Thanos, like it was just a little too much power for me. But I was like, I better make sure this is right because I, I want to, you know, I want the, the the fans to know that um, that uh, everything is okay. So, yeah, and with that too, you don't want that getting back to you. If it wasn't completely right on Wikipedia when the book came out, they'd be like, "That's a guy that doesn't know where the Friends are apartment is." I exactly, and you know, it's just one of those funny things because Friends has become so popular. Uh, you know, every time I visit New York, you walk by uh, the Greenwich, Greenwich Village area to like 90 Bedford Street, where the exterior was that they showed on TV. And I think, you know, a lot of people that aren't familiar with production or the ways TV shows are shot, you know, they they go there thinking, oh, that's where, you know, the, it was shot. That's where the apartment was. And it's just the exterior. And that's always something fun, too, for people who don't know production is that, you know, all of these multi-camera sitcoms that, you know, utilize three cameras and uh, something like The Office would be a single cam uh, for people who aren't familiar and uh, people go to these locations, these exteriors to get these shots thinking that's where they shot. But, you know, on a soundstage in L.A., they shot all that in New York, all the exteriors. And um, one thing I learned that was really fun about Friends was that people always mistake a fountain in New York called Cherry Hill Fountain for the one that they danced at. When in reality, it was on a sister site of Warner Brothers outside of Burbank uh, where the fountain was. And now the fountain's in Burbank at the Warner Brothers uh, studio lot. But, um, yeah, they my filmed favorite, that there. My favorite yeah. thing about that fountain is that is also the fountain where Charlton Heston dies in the Omega Man. Oh, I love see I didn't know that and I love that because yeah. that's a if that's you, a great flick. You watch the end of if you watch the end of that film, he's like crucified in a fountain. But if you look closely, it's the Friends fountain. It, and you're right, it was something the studio just owned. It was like a backlot kind of thing. And that's something that I found out a lot with with, with many of these shows is you you see props show up throughout history depending on whose studio is doing the the TV show and it it's just repeats, right? So uh the dog on Friends, uh, Pat the dog is, is what his name was, the prop that Chandler rode in uh, to their apartment at one point. Uh, a lot of people think that that was just like a Friends thing, but in reality, it actually appeared in Family Matters first. Mm. And it was just something the studio had. And they're like, hey, we need a prop, bring it up from the basement. And that also goes for the couch in Central Perk. It was just a couch that they had in the basement. And they said, oh, well, let's let's reupholster this thing and make it look nice. And we'll put it in Central Perk. We need a huge couch for all of them to sit on. And that's where that came from too. So it's just kind of fun to see sort of the, the mystique and the magic uh, kind of go away a little bit and go behind the curtain to, to figure out how they make these TV shows. Because at the end of the day, it's just all craftsmen, craftswomen, you know, doing all the, all the hard work making this show. And then, um, you know, you're in make believe land for half an hour. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. I love that. There's a, if you follow a studio, you can see the props go because you you can tell they're accessing the same thing. One of my favorite things is a costume thing. Uh, Robin Williams costume in Mork and Mindy the spacesuit, the red spacesuit that had the triangle, is actually a Star Trek suit. And it oh, wow. Have, it doesn't have the white triangle, but it's like Colonel Green. I think it's the third season wears it, and it's just a red jumpsuit. And they were both Paramount. So That's so fun. This thing was just hanging in the back. of like, here's a spacesuit. We're not going to use it for the whole show. you know. So just throw it on Robin, and then we'll go get him the suspenders that will wear for the rest of the show. That that so, reminds me of of one I found out. Not to, sorry to cut you off. It was just um, no, no. the puffy shirt from Seinfeld. So before it it, it had its resting place, if you want to call that, at the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. Um, if you watch Frasier, there was an episode where I believe it was Niles was wearing the puffy shirt, the same one from Seinfeld. And it was just sort of an off. wasn't even a joke. It was just I think he was dressed as a pirate or or something like that. But uh, same shirt. And again, uh, it's just kind of fun seeing that. You know, seeing things uh, across different shows on the same studio. Yeah. Now, I don't, you didn't design it, but as we talked about the sound stages and shared 
space. The fourth wall is always something that fascinated me because when these things are are clearly sets, unlike uh, something like The Office, which you know was shot in an abandoned office, so it did have 360. But most of these Frasier, Friends, Seinfeld, the fourth wall of their home just doesn't exist, and uh, they usually shoot around it. Sometimes there's an insert of just a wall. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was, do you know what the thought process in the design was for creating basically the fourth wall of every one of these places? Yeah, I think Inyaki had a really fun time with that. And, you know, it, it really helped that he had decorated, you know, interiors of, of apartments and houses before and he had architecture knowledge. So um, I think that was sort of one of the most interesting aspects of the book was being able to, you know, that's a huge decision to say, what's this fourth wall going to look like, you know, in the friend's apartment or in the Fraser's apartment. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a big responsibility, but I think he, he always did it as like, what would make the most sense. He didn't want to do anything that was going to be out of left field that people would go, wait a minute. Like there's no way he would have, you know, um, a window here, or, or there's no reason a bedroom would be here. But, um, he took a lot of time. I noticed to, to figure that out. And he was super meticulous, you know, for the amount of hours that I watched just to get all the facts right and all the the history and Easter eggs and things like that. I mean, he watched double that to make sure that every angle and every every wall was perfect. And when he designed the fourth wall, um, he wanted to make sure that it, it all, you know, fit very nicely and very smoothly. Yeah, um, uh, I love the way he uh, brings in like, I'm looking at Frazier's apartment now. And first of yep. all, uh, you know, Frazier's apartment, we would see the living room and it would lead into the kitchen and the balcony would be in the back. But every every other set you know uh every other bedroom there are three bedrooms in the apartment there are multiple bathrooms we never see where those are those are just standing like swing sets i love the way he's incorporated them and it it's this l apartment that has these wings and he incorporated what looked like would be the architecture of the building it's like an art deco kind of curve to it yeah yeah and he he knows about all the different uh architecture styles and and art styles and he's really into that too and i think uh, you know, we we would text a little bit over Instagram uh, during the making of the book and hear, oh, I found this thing that's like would fit perfectly in this apartment, or I think I'm going to do it this way because uh, because of this reason, or I found, you know, uh, Frazier uh, had such high end uh, sensibilities, I think this will fit nicely here. And it was just great. Um, I don't know, just learning about the shows and, and Frazier specifically, I mean, you talk about a show that is modern, um, or I should say Frazier's um, style is very modern. And that show cost about $500,000 to uh, dress. I mean, it just cost a ton of money. Um, the uh, the furnishings uh, wanted to match his tastes. And the production designer was from Wings and Just Shoot Me. And uh, yeah, they spent about $500,000 on it. The Coco Chanel couch that he jokes about, I think in the pilot too, that I believe by itself was $15,000 and um, had 24 yards. Of, I think it was Italian suede. And, uh, and yeah, just it's kind of fun, you know, hearing about them because you don't, you don't really want to spend too much. We talked about it before. You want to reuse as much as you can from the studio, from the basement and, and the garage. And um, they really made that one, uh, you know, sparkle. And I think, I don't know, it's kind of stood the test of time. And that's like one apartment that would just be so cool to live in. I mean, it's just really nice. Like you got this very, um, very incorrect view of Seattle because yeah. uh, a lot of people Every think- landmark is in one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it definitely wouldn't look like that. But it, I mean, just kind of thinking of it that way, I'd be like, oh, that's like the perfect, uh, you know, penthouse apartment. Yeah, and it helps when you're a spinoff of a successful show too, like yep. uh, because it helps that you're rolling off for friends. So it's like, all right, we can spend five hundred thousand dollars on this set. It reminds me of uh, the the other set I can think of is the Enterprise D in Next Generation. Yeah. That the curved oval of that it was so expensive, uh, and that's only because Star Trek was such a hit. They could spend that amount of money on the main set, which is something they would not do for like the original series. And yeah. in Picard season three, I don't know if you've seen it, but they rebuilt that set and they said that oh. was, a, uh, yeah, they, they're, they do end up back on the enterprise D at some point. I won't say story reasons, but they said it was a real fight for production and they had to steal money from other place for other places because it was such an expensive set to build and they wanted it to be absolutely exact. And there's, really fantastic stories about like how they replaced the screens where they put computer screens in, but the original ones were CRT. So they put a blur around the edge so that everything looked right. But just the architecture of that was so expensive that for for two episodes, it was a real fight to do. And there aren't many like that. Most, most of these floor plans are, you know, they're fairly boxy 
you know, three walled environments. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, with Frasier too, you know, you had a show that, yeah, it was a spinoff of Cheers, which was so successful. And that was actually a show that, um, a quick aside was one that I knew a little bit about, but didn't know a lot about. And I watched a ton of it and it's so well-written. And I watched all these interviews of these, you know, famous showrunners from The Office and The Good Place and, and any other show you could think of that's a modern show. And they're all just like waxing poetic about Cheers. And I was like, why? Well, what's really the big deal about the show? And when you watch it, you have this huge bar set, which, you know, the first season, it never leaves the bar, which was kind of cool. And uh, I think the first time it left the the set of the bar was the premiere of the second episode when they were uh, in an apartment, which is kind of fun. But um, yeah, watching that show. And then, yeah, you got Frazier, who's moving on to his own show. Is this going to work? Is it not? Sometimes spinoffs don't work at all. And uh, and it worked. And, you know, Kelsey Grammer's been playing that character. I think he, he was playing it for 20 years. And now he's going to be adding more years doing the the revival, too. Yeah, it's which coming is, back to within the next week. Yeah, within the next week. And one thing I loved that I learned about that was that he uh, was the first actor to be nominated for for an Emmy for three different uh, TV shows playing the same character. It was Frasier, Cheers, and in the same cinematic universe, Wings, when he, he uh, guested on that show. So just kind of cool. A um, lot of cool history with that show. And um, one of the other favorite facts I learned was that Lisa Kudrow was actually cast as Roz first. And um, she I think she was on set for maybe like three days. And uh, she was very funny, obviously. She's a, a very comedic actress, but she just didn't have the intensity that they wanted to go up against Kelsey Grammer. And so they let her go, hired Perry Gilpin, who obviously was great on Frasier as Roz, and then Lisa Kudrow right after that uh, booked Friends and, you know, rest is history. Yeah, those are, I love those stories, especially when somebody ends up being successful. It reminds me, when news radio started, the Joe Rogan part was actually played by Ray Romano. Oh, wow, that's funny. And they fired him after a couple of days, and it's like, well, they both did okay. Yeah, well, what happened to him, I guess, right? I wonder if he, if he panned out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know which one is richer. <laughs> you, well, yeah, now now I, that's a good question. Yeah, I, now with the podcast and stuff out there, yeah, who knows? Yeah, I feel like Ray saved well, so it might be Ray. Yeah. Well, I you know what? Looking at uh, these floor plans, uh, I'm going to get to this sooner rather than later. The most inconsistent, as we mm-hmm. said, that you know, uh, we talked about the Seinfeld hallway, which was something that had to be fixed. But the Simpsons house, the Simpsons house is notorious for uh, being inconsistent. There was a Lego set of that years ago, which left some things just out. Um, And obviously the Simpsons, the joke is the important thing. So if it's funny for there to be a door right next to Homer in this room, there's a door next to Homer in this room that you never see again. Um, Famously behind the kitchen, there's sometimes a hallway Sometimes yep. a basement stairs, sometimes uh, a door to the garage. So um, how difficult was that to kind of assimilate the disparate views of of this house, which were totally deliberate? Yeah, right. And I think, you know, you had that back TV room, which yep. sometimes was shown, sometimes wasn't. I know Marge made reference to it a ton on the show, and um, she made a, even a joke about it, I, I want to say. Uh, where she's like, oh, sometimes that room's there, sometimes that's not. And there's just so much history with The Simpsons, too. I mean, you talk about a show that is so um, beloved, obviously, but has such a longevity. But yeah, I think with The Simpsons, um, you know, I think you have to take a little bit of, of uh, artistic license with uh, with it being animated. And you can you can only do so much because from those early seasons on the Tracy Ullman show until even now, I mean, like you said, it just changes so much and things are updated, uh, illustration styles are updated. So um, you can kind of, you know, do the best that you can and, and kind of, uh, you know, leave it there. And it kind of reminds me of the good place because uh, there's a mm-hmm. huge, um, huge overhead map of the whole town of the good place. There's two big maps like that in the book. There's Gilmore girls, stars hollow. And then there's one from the good place. And the trouble I had with the good place, kind of much like the Simpsons was, uh, you know, their storefronts and businesses in the good place, because it's the afterlife, it would almost change like every episode. Right. So you, you'd look in the background and it would be a yogurt place. And then all of a sudden it'd be a bookstore and all of them had funny puns. Obviously they had a great writer's team that did that. So what I did for the good place was um, I not only watched the show all the way through and anytime I saw the buildings, I'd mark it down. And I want, I want to say almost every episode, it was different. Then I watched um, behind the scenes, cell phone footage of people on the, the universal backlot tour who got to see the set. And I was like, Oh, I wonder what it was here. And so what I did is I kind of played the averages. I was like, all right, well this building seven out of 10 times was yogurt, yogurt, yogurt. So we're going to go with that. Or this building um, had a really funny pun that only, it was only in it for a season or maybe for a few episodes, but it's just too funny not to put in there. And so I had to choose that one. So I think, you know, with the Simpsons, um, 
one thing that's not in the book actually that we worked really hard on was uh, Inyaki did Moe's apartment too, which was really cool. And he did Moe's uh, bar. And um, yeah, it was just kind of fun uh, seeing, you know, like you said, the fourth wall and especially the animated stuff. I mean, you're kind of only uh, showing what you want to show and being economical because you had to pump out these shows every week. And um, I just learned so much about The Simpsons because I knew a little bit about it uh, from the writing history, the the writer's room full of Harvard grads, Conan O'Brien, obviously, and and all of that. But um, I actually got to watch some of the episodes and um, some listeners of my podcast that I, I have triviality um, are huge Simpsons fans, especially my co-hosts. And so, um, you know, I'd see these episodes I'd never seen before. And I'm like, oh, I get that reference that they make like every fourth episode. And then uh, I'd watch these these different episodes and I would get all these opinions then from from listeners. They would go, well, you don't really want to go past like season 11 because that's where the show goes down the tube or you want to go to 13 and after 13 is where it changes. And it's just kind of cool that there's like this ethos about the show where people are still diehard fans of it. And it's changed so much over over the years that, um, you know, really it, it's always evolving. And that's why I thought it was so funny. They actually built a Simpsons house that they had a contest for and they sold they a did, person. Yeah. And I learned about that. And I just learned about how funny it was that that person ended up not really wanting it and they, they changed it and they sold it. So um, just kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was an attempt to turn that into a museum at one point. And mm-hmm. it was like, there's a great behind the scenes story of that. It's like the house is not built very well. So no one could actually live in it. It, it was, uh, it was, ba- it was back in the time where you could spend a lot of money on a PR stunt. Yes. Yes. Uh, and yeah, it was just kind of fun. Cause I think the animated ones, um, I think are just a little bit, yeah, a little bit more fun because you can have, have a little bit more leeway with them. Same thing with like Sesame Street too, which is so fun. Um, you know, they have so many sets on there obviously, but seeing that, you know, Bert and Ernie's apartment is used all the time and they just change the pictures and it's like, oh, we're in someone else's apartment now, but you know, it's Bert and Ernie's apartment. Yeah. And those sets they're you know, they're six feet off the ground. So they're usually yep. one flat wall is about all they can do. What was, uh, what was the thing that surprised you the most from what you thought in your mind watching the show it was and then building it out what what was the biggest change you had oh that's a good question kind of like uh, maybe like a, a pre-existing opinion or or yes. things like that yeah exactly. that's a good question um i think you know i i have a few examples i guess so i didn't really know too much about little house on the prairie um i knew that uh, michael landon you know was sort of the driving force behind that it was they were based on novels and um you know, huge, hugely successful show. So when, when we got that one, I was like, oh man, I don't know how I'm going to research this one. I never really saw it. So I watched the pilot and a few episodes and um, really well done. And it was a huge hit uh, when it came out. And it was just kind of fun learning about, for me personally, being a filmmaker is like learning about the behind the scenes. And so with that show, um, one of my favorite facts in the book was that the last season, there's a storyline where the townspeople meet sort of a, a, business tycoon who wants to take over the town. He wants to, to, you know, kick out all the businesses. He wants to redo the whole town and the whole town, you know, gets really angry. And, and the lead characters say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to protest this. We're not going to let them do it. And so they protest it and they say, you know what, we're going to blow up the town because if they, if they want to change our town, no one's going to have it. And if we can't have it, you're not going to have it. So what I found interesting about that was the show was canceled. I think it was its 10th season and no one really told Michael Landon that they were going to get canceled. It was like, I think from a phone call or almost like, you know, uh, equivalent of today of like learning about it on Twitter before you actually get a phone call. So he was really angry. So he went to the writer's room and he's like, I don't want anyone in Hollywood ever using these sets again. It was a ranch that they filmed all the episodes on. And he's like, I don't want anyone using our buildings anymore. And I don't want to see our house on another TV show repainted or whatever. So I want us to write a story where the townspeople blow up the town and then no one in Hollywood is ever going to get to use our set again. And that's why, that story ended that way. That's why the whole town was blown up so that no one could, could use that set anymore. Wow. I remember that at the time. And my, you know, I was a kid at the time, but I remember thinking they're really getting desperate. <laughs> it's like, yep. you're yep. out of stories when you're blowing up the town. And I, I recall, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. I recall that the show ended, but then they would do some like TV movie specials. So I felt like yes. when it ended, it didn't really end. It was kind of like the incredible yeah. Hulk where they, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. years later they did two or three of them. Did they yeah, have, no, that's hundred percent. So did they end up rebuilding the sets they blew up? Yeah, I mean they they did a little bit more on location work. They rebuilt a lot of stuff, and uh, maybe maybe that was the message that worked, right? So maybe he did it. And he's like, no, "You're not doing this anymore." And I'm sure they looked at the numbers and they're like, "Wow, we we need uh, this show back because it's super popular." Because he ended up doing it quite a few years after that, and it was fun kind of learning other behind the scenes stories about you know um, 
he was he wasn't a teen idol obviously he was a grown man but uh women would travel to the ranch um to you know see them film and when he would do like a shirtless scene or they'd be filming all day and it'd be like 100 degrees out he'd take off a shirt and direct they would be screaming so heavily that they had to like be removed because they couldn't film because they were just screaming for him with a shirt off which i thought was like so funny so yeah beetle mania <laughs> yeah exactly um and then the other one, um, there, God, there's so much that I learned that was really interesting. You know, I grew up watching the Brady Bunch with my mom. She was a huge fan of that show. And I loved um, just getting a chance to learn about the house in general. You know, the, the main character uh, or the father figure, I should say, second, secondary main character was an architect. So the house had to look cool. So that was really nice kind of like seeing Inyaki put that together, draw the, the main foyer, um, you know, put all the props in there that were so near and dear to Brady Bunch fans. But I think... Um, just the little details we put in there. So uh, the Brady Bunch, if you ever watched the show, they had sort of that blue his and hers bathroom that the kids always were in and they were always fighting. Right. Um, but you never saw a toilet because the studio did not want anyone to see the Bradys have a toilet and think about them relieving themselves. So they said without no, no, no question, there's no toilet ever in the Brady Bunch. So he put a toilet in there, which is really fun. Um, and then I learned about just some other things that, uh, you know, after season one, there's an episode called Kachoo. And in Kachu, um, Tiger, the dog, the dog character, ac accidentally was hit by a car outside of the studio and died. And so they did not know what to do. So they scrambled and they, they replaced the dog mid-episode with an untrained dog. And the dog started snipping at people and biting a little bit, was very unruly, wasn't able to be trained. So they rode out Tiger completely from the show. And the reason the doghouse is on the show the entire time, even though there's no dog for most of the series, is Barry Williams um, uh, basically said that um, there was a light that fell from the ceiling and burned the AstroTurf on the ground and they needed something to cover it because they didn't want to replace it. So that's why the doghouse is always there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, you think, uh, that, you think about these sets as just, you know, just thrown in the backdrop. And I remember the Brady Bunch at the yard being the most unrealistic looking yard I had yes. ever seen. It's like a fence and half a garage. But it can be the difference between a low-budget show and a big-budget show. It also reminds me that when the Adam West 60s Batman ended, um, yep. I, another network was about to pick it up, but then they found out they had torn down the Batcave and oh. went, no, too expensive. And they canceled the entire show because they didn't have the Batcave set anymore. Wow. Well, you know, that that's funny, too, because there's so many shows, like even Will and Grace, I learned in this uh their set was sent to a college of one of the creators just sort sort of to commemorate it. And then they had a revival themselves, which was very successful. So they needed to get that out of the college, out of the, the storeroom. And luckily they had most of it. But like you said, I mean, a lot of these, these sets are so iconic and you either have to spend the money to completely redo them or hopefully you have the parts. But I mean, a lot of these shows, once a show is done and the contract's over, they throw all the wood in the shop and it's probably, you know, pieces of another set. So you're kind of, you know, screwed at that point. Yeah, and when reviving a show like that when there's something iconic can be way more expensive than doing it the first time because it's yep. such a product of its time where, as you said, with friends, it's like, here's a couch that's in the just in the archives, we'll throw it out. Or again, I think of Star Trek, the chairs on the original Enterprise were just office chairs that were ubiquitous in the 60s. But anytime they rebuilt the Enterprise set for a flashback for one of the other shows – they said those chairs were the most expensive thing because they weren't ergonomic. They only had mm -hmm. four legs on the at the base and everything has five now. And it's the kind of thing where they used it because it was cheap. And now it's the most expensive thing to source. Wow. Um, you know, what's funny about that is it reminds me um, of two stories, kind of. The, the set's being expensive, obviously, but um, you made me think when you said Star Trek. So one thing that I, I really didn't know um, was just how much of a powerhouse couple, um, you know, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were, I mean, they were just like so innovative, so trailblazing when it came to running a Hollywood production company. Um, I can go on and on about that one actually, cause I, I was so fascinated by all of their, their background, but I had no idea that they produced mission impossible and star Trek. And, you know, without them, the show wouldn't have existed, you know, technically. And so, um, knowing that they had a hand in that was really, really cool. Um, and very quickly, I'll just run down a few things. So, um, at the time, you know, TV was done, uh, it, it was broadcasted in Kinescope. And if anyone's not familiar with Kinescope, I like to say it's sort of like the modern equivalent of, 
you're watching a, a show on TV, you take out your cell phone and then you do Facebook Live and people watch it from your cell phone. So you're not getting the best quality. And so Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball were like, you know what? We don't want to do this anymore. We want to move production to California, which was kind of unheard of at the time. And we want to shoot 35 millimeter and we want it to look really, really good. And people are like, that's going to cost a lot of money. No one's doing TV in, in California, which of course now is the capital of TV in the world. And um, they, they changed it to 35 millimeter. They hired a direct photography named Carl Freund, who uh, uh, did the uh, cinematography for Dracula, Metropolis. He directed The Mummy. And they basically came up with the flat lighting studio system, uh, or excuse me, flat uh, studio lighting system, which, um, you know, is what is still used today, which is basically, if you can imagine when you see some of these TV sets, you see a behind the scenes picture of them. There's all those lights that are above the set that is basically the ceiling. And it's just uh, to give you the flattest, cleanest lighting for the actors so they can basically act like a stage play. You don't have to do a lot of different setups. The lights are always what they are. You can kind of change them a little bit here and there, but they're always going to be the same. And we still use that today in you know, TV series and um, news, news programs and things like that. And so, um, yeah, just so, so innovative and learning about them you know, and, and what they did for, for TV was super cool. And then just hearing about these like crazy stories and two of them, I'll tell you very quickly, were... Lucy, um, you know, has a baby on the show and there's a very famous episode that, uh, did much better in the ratings than Dwight D. Eisenhower's inauguration. And it was her having her baby. So there's the episode she had, uh, her baby on the show. And then in real life, a a few months later, when it, uh, actually aired on TV, Lucille Ball had her baby, Ricky Jr. Um, by C-section, uh, that night, which I thought was like kind of a funny coincidence. And on that note, the Brady Bunch, uh, the famous episode when Marsha gets hit in the face with the football, she breaks her nose, she goes, ow, my nose. Um, the night that that episode aired, Maureen McCormick, who played Marsha, got into a fender bender and broke her nose for real. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, Lucy, I just saw a video today. Actually, there's a really good um, documentary that Amy Poehler produced called Lucy and Desi. Oh, that, cool. That goes into their whole. And then there was a um, there was an HBO movie with Javier Bardem as Debbie as Desi and uh, maybe Nicole Kidman as Lucy. Oh, yes. Yeah, being the Ricardos, I think. Yes, which was also very good. But I just saw actually in a YouTube video today, they also created the live studio audience because the the laugh track was already a thing. Um, This was the video I was watching said the laugh track actually originated on radio shows and they brought it over. And then Lucy and Desi were the ones that like, no, I want real people laughing. Um, but since they were involved in so much innovation, what'd you learn about that set? Cause that was, a, uh, it was a very straight railroaded set. Yeah. I mean, it was very straightforward. Um, it, you know, kind of, I guess was one of the first or maybe the first, um, to sort of give you that aura of, Hey, wait a minute, this, this apartment's like way too big for someone who lives in New York. Uh, you know, and they lived on the Upper East side and I think their rent was like $125 at the time, which is insane. Um, but that set, um, not, I didn't learn too much. I just learned that it was so, um, so it was just able to be used in so many different ways. Um, so diverse because Lucy, uh, came from vaudeville and, uh, like you said, so live audiences and this whole show was based on a radio show that she did. And, um, the reason that she even got the show was she had this radio show called my favorite husband. It was a weekly program and studio executives loved it. And, um, they said, Hey, you know, we want to make this TV show. She took some of the writers from that. And um, to kind of fit into what you were saying before, um, she said, hey, I want my husband to play my husband. I want Desi to be my husband on the show. And they're like, well, he's Cuban and no one in America is going to believe that a Cuban guy married a redhead and you guys have an interracial relationship. It was like a very hot button subject. And she goes, well, look, I'm not going to do the TV show unless you let Desi be my husband and I'll walk. And so what she did then while she was waiting for them to make a decision, she took Desi on the road to a bunch of vaudeville shows got a huge following. People just loved their act. And she was basically playing the Lucy character. And then there was so much uproar about how much everyone loved Lucy and Des- uh, Desi that they're like, all right, well, he can be your husband on the show then, um, which I thought was really cool. And, um, and and then also one of the writer's room rules was that no one could make fun of Desi's uh, accent and the fact that he couldn't speak English at well, except for Lucy's character. If anyone else did it, she'd get really angry and she'd probably fire him. So um, it, it could only be her and her character. Um, but with the set specifically, um, I just think it was it was one of those things where it kind of you know influenced some of the the vaudevillian nature of it where you know you, you have the the famous set where they're they're uh, making chocolate or she's doing vitamin uh meta vegemin and stuff and they're just kind of rolling in these sets you know almost like SNL where you're coming in for these like fun little hey we're not really going to cut around this one background we're just going to stay on you uh, pretty straight 
and let her kind of do her thing. And, um, and that's, that was just kind of fun because they made a huge investment when Lucy and Desi moved to the country. And if you remember that they had a country home and the show, um, was doing very, very well. I mean, it was at the top of the charts for the most part, and there was no emotional fanfare or farewell. The creative team was kind of shocked that the studio was like, Hey, uh, the show's over. We're not going to pick it up anymore. And so they were kind of devastated because the story doesn't really end. There's a, an episode where Lucy and Desi are in the country. Fred and Ethel come to live out with them in the country. And there's this big um, sort of 1776 Revolutionary War celebration. And uh, Lucy orders a statue for it. That's like her big job for the, for the uh, parade. And when it, when it comes in, she accidentally breaks it. And so she paints herself all in white and tries to pose as the statue. But her dog ends up recognizing her and licking her. And she breaks character. But... Um, that show just didn't really have an ending. And like some of the other ones we're talking about, like um, Little House on the Prairie, um, they were also one of the first shows or, or entertainment properties to go, all right, well, our, our first run is done. We were massively successful. What can we do with this brand? And then they had Lucy and Desi TV specials, holiday specials, comedy specials, and they just kept um, increasing sort of the output of that cinematic universe, if you want to call it that. And the Brady Bunch did the same thing. And I think it's the same thing that we do now. I mean, you see all of these shows going, you know, is our footprint only going to be three season? What else can we do? Can we make a movie? Can we make several movies? Can we make web series like community? I mean, communities lasted for so long. So um, yeah, just very innovative when it comes to that, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, thinking about the this idea of the set being the home base and being iconic, um, and there's there's an emotional attachment you get to these places because they become like a second home to you. I know going back to Picard season three, when they showed the cast step back onto the Enterprise D, I got choked up. And I never really thought of that show as being like a big part of my soul. But just seeing that room really resonated. Um, and I'm wondering, you mentioned The Good Place. And when you mentioned The Good Place, I'm like, well, what, what, what could that be? Because there was the town, there was Eleanor's house, but then every season it changed. You know, they, they're in the afterlife, they go back to Earth, they go to hell, they, they go to the future. And when I, you mentioned The Good Place, I was like, well, there, I don't know what the home base is there. And everything, things are going more single camera. Is this something that you think we're losing? Or do you think, what is the last really iconic set you think there is? Wow, that's a really good question. Um... Yeah, I think, you know, early 2000s, we start going into single camera territory. It's they're cheaper to make. You don't have to worry about an audience. You don't have to pay people to come and listen to a comedian and have them there for a few shows. Um, you're not spending studio time. So I think, yeah, entertainment really shifted. I talk about it in the book a little bit. You know, you have a show like Arrested Development um, that was sort of a, a purveyor of digital camera work. Uh, you know, they, they shot on uh, HD tape and um it was cheaper. They were able to spend more money on the actors, the writers, um, you know, on location filming, and it just kind of opened everything up. And then obviously you have the office, which was a, was a branch off basically of the, of the British version. And the mistake that they made kind of is, is they thought they had to be to the letter exactly the same as Ricky Gervais's and Stephen right. Merchant's office. And it didn't do well. It, people weren't, um, weren't connecting with it. And then, you know, they changed tone and you can see that tone change. It's the exact same thing that happens with Parks and Rec, which is so oh, funny yeah. to me. Because I same, just same did writers. a rewatch of that. Yeah. I just yep. did a rewatch of that. And it was, uh, I, I jumped in because I was like, I, I know it's going to be a hard slog for those first couple of seasons. And yep. then, so I started at around season three when Rob Lowe and Adam Scott came in. Yep. But then when I finished it, I, I hadn't had enough. So I went back and it's, yep. it's really jarring. It's like night and day. It is. And and one thing I thought was funny that I learned, too, is that with The Office, for any fans of that, um, you know, it starts uh, just like the, the other uh, the other show from England. And originally, um, Greg Daniels wanted to do the Dundies episode to be the to be the pilot. But the studio was like, no, no, we got it. We got to stick to the, the original British version because that's what people are going to want. And they probably should have gone with his gut. I mean, it ended up being super successful anyway. But um, but to answer your question, I think you know, you saw the success of all these shows. And at the end of the day, what we've learned from, you know, the, the writer strike, SAG strike, uh, DGA strike studios really, you know, care about the receipts and the money. And it's, it was cheaper to do the single camera comedies or TV series for that matter. And, you know, you could shoot on location, you could be a little bit more fast and loose with it. But I, I want to say as far as like the, the last iconic set, um, I don't know if it's, it, it would be considered iconic yet, but you know, the big bang theory was, was something I talked about in the book that kind of came in after the office was super popular. 
after all these single camera comedies were were massively popular as well. And it said, no, actually, we're going to go back to the old days. We're going to do three cameras. We're going to do a set, a stage at Warner Brothers. And that one um, kind of, I mean, it lasted, you know, 11 seasons, 11, 12 seasons. And so um, that's the last one I can remember that that really made a difference. I mean, there are some multi-camera comedies now, um, or I guess How I Met Your Father was just canceled, but you have that, you have a couple on CBS is always going strong with the multi-camera comedies for some reason. Uh, maybe the demographic is, is older and that, that's why, but, um, but yeah, The Big Bang Theory is the last like huge show that was very successful that I could think of that, um, that had a set that was, that was everlasting there for a while. Yeah. I th- well, it's the last big three camera, although Thinking about single camera and and maybe in some ways I'm answering my own question. When you said Arrested Development, I immediately thought of the model home yep. and then, um, you know, uh, George Bluth and Lucille's apartment. I was like, OK, those are iconic. And then I started to think, well, the Breaking Bad house. I do remember that really clearly. Yep. And uh, when you said um, when you said the last big sitcom, the thing that uh, rang in my head was uh, Patty's Pub and Always Sunny. I mean, it's, it's oh, very yeah. much a soundstage, but it's single camera. That's and a really great point. They really meld both styles together. You're right. I mean, that is one that's very recognizable. Um, yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good point there. And it's it's taking you know influence from famous uh, multicams like Seinfeld and and things like that. So that's a really good example, actually. I love that. Yeah, and it has that like Lucy, where it's like the bar is this the home base, and there's a lot of detail in there. There's a lot of space in there, but they each have apartments. So they're much smaller sets with less detail. Yep. You know, so you could see those kind of being in the wings, like like it, when you watch SNL, the, the big sketchers are always in front of the band where they call home base, where yep. the monologue happens, like they put the weekend update wall there or they put they used to put Wayne's World there. They used to the sketch. And uh, Dana Carvey said this on his podcast, the sketches they thought were going to do really well. They put there because the audience was facing it. Oh, and that's that's a great point. In Studio AH is an old radio studio, so they use every corner and. um when you watch it, there are sketches you can't see because they've used a wall that's like underneath you. Uh, and uh, I think there is strength to that where the home base is almost, that's what's straight up. That's the place you're looking at. That's, that's the home you're looking at all the time. The other places feel like they're in the wings of the universe of that show. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I think you mentioned the good place, you know, her house is kind of a home base. I mean, it's, it's in the book. Um, but I don't think, you know, you, you spent a little bit of time there, but I, I really think the home base of that show, um, is sort of the, the courtyard, which is the universal backlot. And if you've ever been on universal tour, um, it's called little Europe. They've used it in a million different movies. It's always redressed. And for the good place for, I think it was three years, it was always that set and you could walk around. It looks like you were in the afterlife. Um, and I think that's probably the home base, which I'm really glad that Inyaki decided to draw the overhead of the entire town because that like Gilmore girls, really, I mean, exact same thing. It's the, the Warner brothers version of, of the good place. You have the backlot over there, any town USA, it was called stars. Hollow is really the star set wise of that show. Uh, just like the, the courtyard and, and sort of the, uh, the main town, uh, which they call, uh, what is a uh, neighborhood one, two, three, five, eight W, which I think is still burned in my memory, but that's, that's what that town is. So yeah, I think that's, that's very cool that you mentioned that. Cause I think that's probably what, what I would say is, is their main home base. Yeah. Now, uh, obviously you're following the design, the designs and the designs are taking the the bulk of the book. Was there anything you wanted to get to that just wasn't designed or didn't have time? Or was there anything you researched that didn't make it? Yes. Um, there were a few things I researched that didn't make it. Uh, I have to think about that uh, right now. But I think as far as shows, um, I really wanted to do Family Matters, which I think is great, especially being you know the Chicagoland area. Um, I thought Fresh Prince would have been really great. Um, I, I really wanted to do Full House, actually. And Inyaki, he knows a lot about American culture, watches a lot of TV and movies. Uh, but that one, I just did, didn't connect with him too much. So maybe if we can do another book, it'd be great. Because I feel like you know Full House is so iconic here in the States. And, um, it would just be really interesting to see like, where were all the bedrooms that this entire, you know, uh, blended family lived in. I thought that would be kind of fun. And then see the basement with the the drums for uncle Jesse and everything. Um, so those were a few that I wanted to do. We almost did the Jeffersons. We were kind of, you know, in the process of doing it. And, and, uh, if we can do it again, uh, hopefully that one will go in there. Um, as far as things that I learned that weren't in the book, um, a lot of it was just like little, little facts that I learned that just, uh, just didn't end up, you know, the word count had to go down. So I'm trying to think of a few, um, 
I think, oh, there's one um, for Friends, actually. So uh, everyone knows that there's a lot of famous cameos on Friends. You had Tom Selleck uh, dated Monica for a while. Um, you had uh, Brad Pitt was on there when he was he was married to uh, Jennifer Aniston. But um, the Bruce Willis cameo was one that I thought was super interesting that didn't make the book, which was uh, Bruce Willis only did Friends because when he uh, did the movie The Whole Nine Yards with Matthew Perry, um, they had a bet together. Matthew Perry said, I think this movie is going to be a huge success. And Bruce Willis said, I don't think that anyone's really going to go see this movie. I, it's like two all over the place. It's not going to make a lot of money. And he goes, all right, well, if it does do really well, you have to come do a stint on Friends. And he's like, sure, deal. And of course, it made like millions and millions of dollars. And that's the reason that he cameoed on Friends for a few episodes. I always wondered about that. Of course, I always wonder about Bruce Willis uh, in general, because he was so fun funny on Moonlighting. And then when he makes that turn as uh, as a, as an action star, I always felt like he was a guy that just went not funny anymore. Because when he came on Yep. He's he's a good deadpan in Hold On Yards, but when he came on Friends, I was like, wait, what happened to David Addison? Don't you have <laughs> that? Like, you know, like when Eddie Murphy came back and did, hosted Saturday Night Live for the first time, it was like a switch he just flipped on. It's like, oh, yeah, you're still the funniest man in the universe. And Bruce Willis was just like, no, it was a trunk that I put into the attic, and I'm never going up to that attic again. <laughs> That's so funny. Um yeah, I thought that was a funny fact. And then, uh, you know, Gilmore Girls is a, is a huge, important show to my wife. And um, it was kind of fun researching that one because she knows like literally everything about that show. And we've gone to trivia events before where I just go as like eye candy. And then she answers all the questions, wins the money. And, uh, you know, she was teaching me stuff about it where if you ever watch Gilmore Girls or if you're a fan of it, you notice that everyone talks at a very fast patter. The dialogue is very quick. And that was all designed by the creator, Amy Sherman Paladino, who would go mm. on to do Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Another so very fast patter show. Yeah, exactly. And it was an edict for the scripts that you know, normally TV scripts uh, of an hour show were maybe, you know, 45 to 60 pages. Theirs were over 75 pages because th they had to hit all the dialogue very quickly. Um, they had to do it verbatim, word for word, uh, word perfect. They couldn't improv. So it was all like a play. And then they actually had a special coach on set who would help them with breathing techniques and speaking techniques so that they could say all these lines super, super fast, which was very um, interesting. And this is actually a part I didn't put in the book. Um, uh, Lauren Graham, who played Lorelai, uh, and Scott Patterson, who played Luke, they were both smoking quite a bit, uh, as many actors do, and they were having trouble. So they had to quit smoking in order to have the breath control to do all these lines back and forth super fast. And then Alexis Bledel, um, who played Rory, English is her second language, which a lot of people don't know. And so to have these scripts be super long with all these monologues that she's doing with Lauren Graham, it was also a struggle for her. So they had to have a coach on set who ended up cameoing as a professor in one of the episodes at Yale. But um, I just thought, I found that so funny. And it's, it's kind of interesting because I think people forget that, you know, you, we watch these TV shows and, you know, we, we have wonderful scripts written by uh, writers rooms, which is great that they, you know, they got what they wanted in the deal uh, for the strike. But I think people don't realize it's not like movies, right? Where you have, one, you know, and Aaron Sorkin writes a script for a movie and I mean, he's, he's high level. So um, he'll be the only writer on a script or he'll get hired to write other people's scripts. But uh, a lot of times movies only have one writer. I mean, the ones we don't see studio movies, those usually were written like seven, eight times or whatever by, by ghost writers. But let's just say, you know, for the most, most part, Hollywood movies written by one writer, or at least created by one writer. TV shows are always a collaborative effort of, you know, eight to 12, 10 writers or whatever. And we're kind of missing that heyday because, um, you had a showrunner who was the executive producer. All the writers would write their scripts, give it to the showrunner. They would rewrite it, do their stuff, and kind of make sure the overall vision was there. And so the Gilmore Girls was a show where Amy Sherman Paldino was like, we're doing everything word perfect. It's going to be like a screwball comedy from the 30s and 40s. It's going to be like a play. This is what we're doing. But flash forward to now, look at all the TV shows that are out there. I mean, you have The White Lotus. Mike, Mike White is the only writer on the show. Even though there's a writer's room, they come up with ideas. He's the sole writer. Or you have other TV shows that are sort of like from the mind of X, Brian Fuller, whatever it may be, they're going to be writing all the, all the scripts. And um, it's kind of interesting because all these shows that are in the book, they were, you know, uh, built on the backs of many writers, right. And many collaborate collaborative people. Um, and we're kind of moving away from that. Cause I think TV is, is becoming more cinematic. I mean, for the most part, it's a lot better than a lot of the movies that are out. And so uh, you're just kind of seeing a shift where TVs are almost movies now. And, and movies are are, start, are sort of, especially some of the Marvel movies um, are sort of, um, you know, uh, work by committee. I mean, you have the studio heads, visual effects heads, you have the marketing team, 
Uh, and sometimes the director and the writer don't have too much influence in those movies. So it's kind of interesting to see that shift. Yeah, well, uh, especially because we get shorter seasons now. Yep. You know, the writer's room was responsible for 26 episodes, you know, and the right. Simpsons still do that. The Simpsons still do about 20. But now when you have six, eight, ten, you can have one writer to yep. stay with it. And, you know, they talk about these 10 episode movies and, you know, Disney Plus certainly was a big proponent during the pandemic of taking a lot of movies that were in production and saying, well, now you're a TV show. You yeah, know, right. and and some things work really well and some things uh like i would say something like obi-wan i thought would yeah. was a great two-hour movie it yeah. was a six-hour series and uh it began to repeat itself and sometimes it began to slow down so there is that blurring but there yeah. i think they are two very very separate medium when handled the right way yeah i think you're right i think like yeah in the case of obi-wan um you know, it was probably, you know, studio interference, maybe not in a negative way, but it's like, how much can we get out of this property? We have, you know, you McGregor back and we want to reintroduce Hayden Christensen. And, um, you know, you, you kind of think in your head, you're like, well, if I was in charge of Star Wars, I want the fans and, and people like myself to get as much Obi-Wan as possible. But then you just need that objective person there to be, hey, you know what? It probably should just be a two hour movie. And I think everyone will be happy with that because it'll be really good for two hours as opposed to really good for two hours and then kind of uh, it's going off the hill a little bit um for the you know hour four five and six or whatever so um i think that's sort of what hollywood's grappling with because yeah like you said you have these shows that um are maybe movie scripts and they're like actually we want this to be an extended series now and now you're you're formulating and creating uh plot lines that don't really belong or don't really need to be there but you're like hey i gotta fill six episodes out of this thing um but it might be the, the the classic writers coming in to to make those shows work and the simpsons a perfect example like you said they've been doing it the same way since the late 80s and uh it's working i mean obviously the you know the the quality of it can be debated, debated amongst uh, simpsons fans but they're doing it the old-fashioned way and it, it's been you know if it's not broke don't fix it so it's kind of cool that they're still doing traditional writers rooms uh people pitch if they like the idea they get to write the script and then everyone as a community can kind of punch it up with jokes but um i i, I always love that i think that's like a really fun way of um, of doing a show. And, and it was fun going back to all these old shows that I wasn't familiar with, like Cheers that I mentioned, where, you know, they're really the reason that TV sort of did the will they, won't they relationship that's on every TV show now, Parks and Rec, for example, or or The Office with Jim and Pam. I mean, any TV show you watch, Castle, um, you know, you had uh, uh, Ted Danson and Shirley Long, like they were, they had that sort of uh, sexual tension and they really held out as long as they could. I mean, the whole first season, you're like, are they going to kiss? Are they not going to kiss? And it was like maddening. And they just had the audience in, in America, you know, by the throat with that. I mean, I, everyone loved to see what was going to happen. And um, it's really cool to kind of watch those old shows. And like a lot of that stuff is still, uh, it still works now, even though it's however many years, you know, uh, passed. So. Yeah. And like I said, uh, Seinfeld and friends are, have become even more popular with streaming. Yeah, you know, they've got this whole second life. And I do I do agree with you about the writer's room. Like when it's done right and you get these different voices, the mm -hmm. first of all, the show gets broader. It, yep. uh, it has more to say because it's coming from more than one person. But it's also how you grow writers to become great writers themselves. Yep. You know, um, somebody like Vince Gilligan came from the X-Files. He was one of, you know, six or seven writers on the X-Files for years, creates Breaking Bad and then goes out of his way to groom writers like Peter Stroud to then create Better Call Saul. I mean, I yep. always think of Taxi, which was a great, great show, mm -hmm. but every writer on Taxi ended up creating a huge sitcom network because Cheers comes yep. out of Taxi, but also like Coach comes out of Taxi. The Simpsons comes out of Taxi. Tracy Ullman show comes out of Taxi. And it's yep. because you're training these people to get better and better at their craft that they can then go out and create something as good as the thing they came from. And yep. you're not going to get that with a single writer. Right. Show. Right. And, it, you know, for better or worse, right. I mean, you, you'll have like a, a person with their, their ideas. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm a big fan of the West wing. And so with the West wing, you know, the first four seasons, it's all Aaron Sorkin, right. So he wrote every script and then he leaves the show. The show is, you know, not uh, terrible, but it's, it's definitely a different show. You can see that it's different. Um, you know, in some cases, yeah, maybe it works to have that singular writer, even though there is a writer's room there. But like you said, you need, all those different perspectives because a TV show really becomes interesting when you're like, Oh, you know, I, uh, what's a good example. So, you know, you watch a TV show and you're like, um, 
you know, this character is always going to be the goofball every episode. I'm expecting him to do a prep fall and, and he's going to like, you know, uh, get into some trouble. But then you, you introduce other writers and it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, why is he always getting into trouble? Maybe we should do a little bit about, you know, his life with his mom or whatever. And you, you introduce those cool plot lines that you never would have thought of before if you're a singular writer. And it just makes the, the show so much more rich. And um, especially, like you said, Breaking Bad, perfect example. Vince Gilligan was so good at cultivating talent. And that's the reason that show is just so great. I mean, every episode is just written, you know, to an inch of its life and it's all constructed so perfectly. And that's because you have all of these really smart people in a room going, um, let's, you know, read over this a million times uh, that we can and making sure that the script is, is absolutely perfect. And it's just like, it's very evident. And I think a lot of TV shows, you can tell when they care and then when they're just going through the motions. And I think people give sitcom writing, especially a bad rap. They're like, well, it's just, you know, set up, set up joke, set up, set up joke. And it's like, well, not really. I mean, you have to do that 24, 26 times a year and you have to reinvent yourself every episode to keep people from coming back while doing the stuff that they love. So it's actually a lot harder than I think people give it credit for or procedural for that matter. I think like a law and order, I mean, how many times are we going to see someone get arrested or evidence be at a crime scene and then they find the killer, but we keep watching it because they're able to make it different every time because there's a, a room full of writers who's able to come up with great reasons why. Yeah, it, that's the trick of television is give us the same thing, but different every yep. week in, week out. Uh, yeah, it's interesting when you mentioned Aaron, Aaron Sorkin leaving and the show becomes a different show. Um, usually that signals the end of the show. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many shows where we go, oh, the main writer left and this is when it went downhill. The I feel like the exception that proves the rule is Veep. Because oh, 100%. Was, yeah. That was the only show Armando Annucci created it. Armando Annucci came from the thick of it. British shows, brilliant show. After the third season, he leaves. He creates, makes The Death of Stalin, which is a great movie. But then David Mandel comes in, who was yep. a Seinfeld writer, who worked with Julian Seinfeld, came from SNL. And I remember watching those later seasons. I was like, wait, this show's better. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know that that will ever happen again. And I don't know why, but it's, it was so rare that you brought an American in with a totally different sensibility, but he didn't want to, he didn't want to reinvent the wheel. He just wanted to do it as well as it had been done before and managed to surpass it. I love that example he brought up. That's, that's a really great one. And, and actually David Mandel did it on Seinfeld uh, a little bit too. I mean, you had Larry David who um, I believe was at the end of season seven. Um, he was having some disagreements with the studio. They wanted the show to keep going. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to bow out. David Mandel comes on. Um, they get rid of the uh, cold opens of Jerry doing stand-up. They go for more traditional cold opens where it's like a joke or a setup. And you'll notice it when you watch Seinfeld, them walking down the street going, like, oh, why do we have urinals and blah, blah, blah. So um, so it, it's an interesting shift because then Seinfeld, while I was, re- I rewatch it all the time, like I said. And so it's so funny thinking about what are the most iconic moments of Seinfeld, ones that we talk about with our family and the first seven seasons have so many that are super iconic, the contest and, and all of that, those episodes. But then you think about Elaine dancing and like, Oh, wait a minute. That was like in the last two seasons, or Mm -hmm. you think about some of the other big things that happen. And it's, it is kind of fun to, even if it was one voice, even if it was just David Mandel and maybe not a writer's room, but someone to come in and go, that's a really good idea, Larry. What if we did this? And then everyone goes, Oh yeah, you know what? Maybe we should go a little bit further with this joke and, and make it, you know, kind of funny. And I think, um, it's really cool watching that throughout history. And, and the, the funniest thing with with Seinfeld was um, I learned like Gilmore Girls, there was a, hey, you have to follow the script. Uh, the scripts have to be basically about mother and daughter at the end of the day. I don't want, you know, they don't have to be about anything else other than mother and daughter. Seinfeld was, they had a no hugging, no learning policy, which I thought was hilarious because if you watch that show, they while they can be despicable to other people, they can often be despicable to each other, but they forget about it by the next episode. And that was Larry David's edict. It was like, you know, they're never going to learn and they're never going to be hugging afterwards saying, I'm really sorry I did that. They're going to be terrible to each other. And then they're going to forget about for the next week's episode. And I think it'll work. And it, and it did. Yeah. And I think always Sonny picked up that torch. Yep. Of, of course. Yeah. yeah of, of screwing <laughs> the main characters screwing each other over. I think one of the, one of the things you can pick up out of David Mandel's script, talking about other voices and to bring it back to what we usually talk about. David Mandel, I read in interviews, is a, uh, a huge comic book geek as mm-hmm. we all are. And all of the comic book references, uh, you know, yep. the the girl who's the two-faced, the Bizarro Jerry, the Wrath of Khan, all yep. David Mandel. That's, yeah, I love that too. And that's, I mean, that's, that, uh, you know, goes toward how underappreciated comic book writers are. I mean, they're juggling all these different storylines, uh, all these different 
um, moods and genres and, and every uh, issue that comes out. And I think a lot of times people just assume comic book, it's the art, the art looks really cool. They don't really care about the writing or oh, maybe the artist wrote the, did the writing. And I think, you know, they need to, you know, get their, their flowers too, because it's really hard when you have like, let's say 40 issues or something of a storyline, you got to keep people's attention uh, with text, with uh, amazing artwork. And I could totally see, you know, why a lot of comic book artists do go to TV, do go to movies. They're just made for it. I mean, they, they've been in the trenches, so they know what to do. And it, it, to them, I'm sure a TV show where you get a full week to write 20 minutes is like, oh, that's great. You know, I don't have to worry about doing, uh, you know, five issues of this. And the pay is much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I know we've been talking about writing for a long time, which makes a lot of sense for both of us. But to wrap things up with the um, the floor plans, we talked a lot about different eras. We talked a lot about different voices. We talked a lot about um, different genres. But I was wondering, is there a quintessential difference in the floor plan between a half an hour sitcom, which we've been talking about most of the time, and an hour drama? Is there a difference in the way that room is laid out, depending on the tone they want to hit? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I think... Well, I think um, the half hour is very particular, you know, when it comes to Friends, for example, we'll use that one. So that set is so iconic. Um, you know, the creators said that Friends was a, a show that represented comfort food for the viewers. And you even mentioned it up top. Uh, you know, you, you got teary-eyed when you saw a set um, that you were you were waiting to see again. And I think, you know, for the half hour comedy, um, the set needs to be absolutely perfect. Uh, obviously it can't be perfect, um, architecturally, but it just has to be perfect in a way that, you know, everything is going to take place there. And, and if you can get the characters comfortable there, you can get the viewers okay with seeing everything the same every week. Um, I just think, yeah, you have so much more success with that. And that's why those sets become iconic. I think, you know, we talked about the West wing, which isn't in the book or, or breaking bad. I love all the sets in breaking bad, but breaking bad was a little bit different because it was a modern show that, shot, you know, on location a ton, also shot on the stage. But, you know, that show, Albuquerque itself, I think, is even more of a character than any of the sets on the in the show. And, you know, you go to half hour comedies, you only have 22 minutes without without the ads to to get people to love your show. And I think, um, you know, you, your set has to be um, has to be perfect in that respect. So I think if you don't have the right set, you don't have the right you know, mise-en, if you want to call it that, or you don't have the right home base uh, for a show and a half-hour comedy, it's definitely going to be detrimental. But if it was an hour show, hour drama, you can really get away with it. I, you know, you don't have to have a home base as much. Um, you can have one that's iconic. I mean, the West Wing would have the Oval Office, I, I suppose. Um, but everything else, I mean, hour drama, you just really have to fill it with actual drama. I think the, the 22 minutes you need for half-hour comedy, um, you need to make it more like a play. You got to hit them real quick with jokes. And I think that, that lends itself to to one hero set that's much more important than an hour drama. Well, Neil, uh, I want to thank you for um, the material you sent me before, so because uh, these designs are gorgeous. Um, but now I want to buy the book. <laughs> and so where do I buy the book? Uh, so yeah, you can go, if you'd like uh, to go to Amazon, if you get a lot of stuff off of there, it'll come pretty quickly. You can go there. Um, if you do, you know, please leave a review. It'll help us out, help the, uh, uh, the eyes on it. Um, you can go to bookshop.org if you'd like to buy it from an independent bookstore. Some of them uh, have a partnership with bookshop.org. So if like, let's say, um, you know, in New York, I love going to the drama bookshop. They're partnered with bookshop.org. So if you go to their website, order the book, they'll get the residuals from that, which is really great to help independent bookstores. Um, and then coming up here, actually, uh, if you're in the local Chicagoland area, um, October, uh, what is it? The 15th uh, Sunday, I'm going to be at North Riverside Library doing a fundraiser, um, talking a little bit about the book and myself. You can buy the book there um, if you'd like. You just have to go to their their website. Uh, actually, if you go to my link tree, I can give you the link uh, for the show notes. You can get tickets for that. Uh, on the 28th of October, I'll be at Barbara's Bookstore at Yorktown Center uh, in Lombard, and I'll be doing a signing there. So if, if you do actually want to come out and get a book, that's going to be my first time ever doing a signing for real. And I just don't want to be like one of those TikTok stars who, you know, no one came to their signing and I have to make a video about it. So hopefully people will come and, and get a book signed at Barbara's bookstore. Um, but yeah, other than that, um, basically anywhere you want, but yeah, independent bookstores, bookshop.org is a great place. Uh, or if you want it, you know, super quick, um, go to Amazon. And if you'd like to just send me an email, um, if I don't know you in person or I don't see you at one of the signings, 
I have a bunch of book plates. I can sign it for you and um, and mail you uh, a little sticker you put on the inside of your book. Yeah. So Neil, you and Patrick Stewart are doing your book tours at the same time. I know. I wish I was in New York or, or being on his little cart with him as he's going to visit places, uh, you know, getting on the train with him. Uh, with his, yeah, he's uh, his, Amtracking it. His Amtracking. Yeah, that, that'd be so cool. So uh, maybe one day, you know, that'd be that'd be a really cool story. A nice, uh, uh, you know, a nice little sitcom in itself. Uh, me and Patrick Stewart going on a book tour. And Neil, in this post Twitter world, how do we find you online? Uh, so yeah, you can go uh, on Instagram at Neil E Fisher N E A L E F I S C H E R uh, as Twitter and Instagram. And then if you want to go to my website, uh, some information there, uh, you can go to uh, Neil E Fisher dot com. Same spelling. And as I said, if you want some information on tickets, things like that, go to my link tree, which is uh, linktr.ee slash Neil E Fisher, and you can find out more information there. And you can follow this show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Comics, where we post all the news that's fit to geek. I am not in my book on Instagram and threads and X, but uh, it gets a lot for me to post something on Instagram. Uh, I miss the old Twitter where I could write a joke and walk away. Uh, I know. I'm waiting for... I want threads. I want something to take over, but I'm not going to X. Uh, But... (laughs) And if you are not already subscribed to the show, you can get this podcast anywhere you get podcasts. And Neil, what about your podcast? Oh, thank you. Uh, I almost forgot to say it. Yeah, so my podcast is called Triviality. Uh, It's a weekly pub trivia style game show podcast. We like to say uh, a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. So if you like going to the pub playing trivia, it's basically that uh, for an hour, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. So we we have a lot of jokes. We have people from all around the world coming on to, to play and host games. Jeopardy uh, alum, uh, amateur trivia players, professionals, all that good stuff. Uh, and I definitely want to get you on uh, before we stop recording this year, uh, whether you want to come on, you and Elliot, however you want to do it, and uh, get you together for a game. I think it'll be pretty fun. I know and we maybe keep you... talking about doing it, and the, and the I know. more you talk about it, the more left out I feel. I know. I, I want you on the show because I, I really want to do one that's to your your liking as far as what you're, you're a specialist at. But maybe I'll just have you come on for a regular episode, get you kind of primed, and then we'll we'll have you back for like an Indiana Jones, James Bond, something like that, or uh, we'll we'll get in on, on those uh, bonuses. Yeah, so you can hear me on Triviality at some point, but yep. you can come back to Cabinet <laughs> Comics, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>